All right, well, hey, good morning. So good to see you guys. Uh, I'm always looking for the red light. I thought there was a red light somewhere. One of these has got to you, those of you who are online. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, as well. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at uh, Salem. Before we dive in uh, this morning, how many of you guys have heard uh, of a guy named Nick Hall and a ministry called Pulse, right? Many, many, many of you. Um, this is a, kind of the stomping grounds, home uh, turf. Uh, Fargo Moorhead for Nick. Nick is a as uh, an evangelist has great gifts that the Lord has gifted him with it, and he has a desire and a heart to see not only people come to know Christ, but to see college students uh, come to know Christ. And so Pulse will be here uh, at NDSU this Tuesday, February seventh. So why do I tell you that? We just came out of a series in Acts called Witnesses, and so my hope is that there's this stirring and growing desire in each of our hearts that that God would you know, in this season, bring people to know him, right? As we always hope the kingdom grows and as his family grows. Um, but also too, because um, I know they have lots of needs for volunteers. They have like 30 st- uh, spots that are still or something like that. So if that's something that you're interested in uh, being a part of or helping, um, I don't have the link. And so you can just use fancy Google and, and find it and, uh, and sign up uh, there as well. So, um, but please, if, if, if anything, can you just we as an entire church be praying uh, for the event. We really, really want to see uh, some fruit come out uh, of, this, of this time. So please be praying. So we're jumping into kind of an in-between, you know, kind of a couple of weeks. This next week, you know that we have Celebration Sunday, uh, which is something we do periodically. And so we want to celebrate, you know, who God is and what he's doing in the lives uh, in and through the lives of people here uh, at Salem. Um, But the week after Super Bowl Sunday, oh, excuse me, that's Super Bowl Sunday. And then the week after, uh, we'll start the book of Ruth. And so this morning, I thought, okay, where do we go? What do we do? Where do we start? Um, I just want to set the context for us uh, in getting towards uh, the book of, of Ruth, okay? So this morning, we're going to be in uh, the book of Joshua. Um, you know, we're in some sense going to summarize the entire thing, but we're really just going to look at these first nine verses. Uh, there's some very familiar stuff in here to some of you, um, and so it might shed a little bit of new light on some of that stuff, um, but I want to just to jump in um, into the text this morning. So Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Here's uh, what it says. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, uh, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Okay, Uh, you're like, wow, that's a really boring verse. It kind of is, but here's the deal. For many of us, the reality is, is that we don't always know kind of how the Old Testament kind of fits uh, together. And so I do want to, I just want to spend a couple of moments kind of unpacking, um, you know, kind of the, the Old Testament story to, to lead us up. And again, um, part of this is, is really what we're going to do here is going to be really relevant for how we finish this morning as we look at communion and who Jesus is and, and what he came to accomplish for us and our, and our hope in him. But also, again, we're setting up the whole stage and the context uh, for for Ruth. So, um, you know, we know that the story starts, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And, and so the whole cosmos and in the, in the midst of the, the, the bazillions or whatever it is of galaxies and planets and stars, he has this one little planet that's earth. 
And, and it's in this space that he decides to bring a special kind of life into the story. Um, you know, because everything up to this point has been good. It's tov. It's the Hebrew for good. It's been, it's in right working order, right? Perfection exists. And so, um, but there's still something missing. And so what does he do? He creates man as the pinnacle of his creation to represent, to reflect the image um, of God in a way that creation can't, the rest of creation can't. And he places them, and we don't know exactly where it is, but you know, when you kind of think about the map, it might be somewhere out here in, in this little place called the Garden uh, of Eden. And everything is good, right, until sin enters into, uh, into the world. Um, but it's, as we looked at last week, as Tom did Mission Sunday, he, he mentioned this, and this is so great, is that the, the very first moment when sin enters into the world is the very first moment that God says, guess what, I'm going to fix this. He says that there's going to be this individual who comes and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? It's what we call the proto-evangelium. It's the very first gospel like to enter into the story. But what's interesting is, is that even for us, and we don't oftentimes think about this, is that God, as a consequence to the sin, has to kick Adam and Eve out of that garden. But in so doing, we, we miss this, that this is actually an act of grace. Because when sin enters into the world, what do we deserve? Death, right? So the very first thing that God does is to not bring death. And he enacts this plan from beginning of story all the way through Jesus and all the way to Revelation that teaches us and shows us how he's interacting with the world. And so there's this, there's this act, right? Uh, as he sends them out, but as sin is now the centerpiece of the world, his humanity begins to grow, right? God looks down and he has this regret and he goes, man, this is just terrible. And so what does he do? He sends, you know, kind of this, this flood, right? But in the midst of that, he provides a salvation through the ark, and through Noah and his family, and at the end of all of that, what does he do? He throws a rainbow up in the sky to say, here's the deal, I'm never going to do that again. So as the world kind of starting over in this space, right, as the world is kind of starting over, humanity continues to grow again, but then what's the first thing we find in Genesis is they actually, um, you know, and this is, you know, the problem of humanity, what do they do? They go, man, we like God, we want to be where God is, let's build a tower, which looks like a birthday cake. That's not what we celebrate, you know? Like, we don't celebrate. Like, in fact, then you look at this and we go like, hey, it's actually a pretty ingenious plan, but it's very primitive theology, right? This is not the way that God works. And so we don't celebrate the attempt, but we celebrate the, the acknowledge and the need for God to somehow fix and restore. But as a result of all this, what does he do? You know, he, he sends people out, like he creates different languages and all of a sudden, you know, one guy's talking about a rock, would you hand me that rock and use another language? And some guy's like, what, what are you talking about? right? And so the world, you know, gets populated as people begin to go out. And so as God continues the story of redemption, he calls a guy named Abram, right? He's over here in the land of Ur, and he comes all the way over here to what's modern-day Israel, what would be the promised land, and God gives him kind of two big promises. One, you're going to have a son, and from that son is going to be a massive amount of people. In fact, it's going to be so great that it'll be like the, 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 the pieces of sand on the seashore. And like, wow, it's a lot of people. But where do they go, right? And so God promises is that in that space is that, is that there's also a land, 
That's a land where, where God's people or Abram's descendants will call home. God provides a son, um, uh, Isaac, and here's what's fascinating. I don't know if you've, if you've ever known this or seen this, but, but you know, God actually asks uh, Abram to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And so what does he do? He goes to a mountain, and it's on this mountain that he's going to sacrifice his son. God intervenes and stops the story and says, whoa, 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 guess what? It's no longer that. I'm going to provide what? A lamb later on. Like, I'm going to provide something new, right? A different type of sacrifice, right? And what we may not know and may not realize is that the mountain that Abram and Isaac were on is the exact same mountain that would one day be the temple. And it gives you this massive foreshadowing into the future. We're like, wow, like that's, where, that's where Jesus is going to be. It's pretty incredible, and so God, you know, stops this. He, he continues the story, right? He gives them uh, Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They kind of come down here for a time, and, and what ends up happening is that of these 12 sons, Joseph, who's the youngest, gets sold into slavery because his brothers are mean and angry, right? So they send him over here. Dad thinks that he's gone, right? But then as a result of famine in the land, guess what? <laughs> There's God's plan. They follow right along to Egypt where there's plenty of food and grain, and it's here. This is where they're united. You know, different kind of a birthday cake. Woohoo! Celebration, right? Happiness ensues until the Pharaoh passes. God is multiplying their people so much, right, that this new Pharaoh looks at this, this, this group of people and says, if they choose to rebel, they'll take us out. And so what does he do? He forces them into slavery. Forces them into slavery. And then this becomes right here in Egypt. This becomes the primary motif in the Old Testament that points us towards the New Testament when we talk about our bondage to sin and death. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. So who does God provide? He provides a guy named Moses. Moses then brings his people out of Egypt to the Red Sea, where Pharaoh, you know, pursues. They cross the Red Sea, and as they come back out into this, what is later the wilderness, they eventually, they, they make it all the way up here to this place that God says, this is the place that I promised Abram. And this is the place where, where all of my people are going to flourish. It's a fertile ground, like filled with milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey, right? And so they get to this space. They get to the space, and what, is, what do they do? They send in spies. And Caleb and Joshua go in, and along with a whole host of other people, and they come back, or as they, they go back over, they peer over the mountain, what do they see? Giants. And they become afraid. And so they return to Moses. And he says, what do you guys see? They say, we see giants. Well, what do you think we should do? Caleb and Joshua, they say, hey, God's promise was that this is going to be our land. We should go for it. Don't doubt. Let's trust him. Let's do it. Let's move forward. Everyone's also like, nope, we're done. We're out. It's too big, it's too hard. And so as a result of their disobedience, as a result of their distrust in God, what does he do? He forces them to turn back around. They come back down here into the wilderness 
where they live for 40 years until finally that generation has passed. And so then God institutes again a reenactment and he brings them back up, but under this guy named Joshua. New leader, new time. And you're like, that seems bizarre. There's a lot of arrows. I know, it's crazy. But you'll see in the end why this is important. Because it shows us something very true about the Christian life and the world and the way that we live in uh, today. Um, when I was thinking about this whole journey, I was reminded of a story um, when I was in youth ministry many, many years ago, and uh, we just moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and my wife and I thought that we would do something adventurous and take, you know, 30, 40 um, students on a camping trip from Charlotte all the way to Niagara Falls. <laughs> you guys already know. It was horrible, Okay. I mean, it was incredible and terrible all at once. You know, my one request is, hey, we don't have enough tents, and so parents, can you provide some tents? Uh, my one rule, make sure they don't leak. Make sure they don't leak. I, I don't know if they checked, didn't check, you know, but we get there, we unpack, and you know, it takes like 18 days just to unpack the tents because kids had no clue, you know, it's like, poles were like sticking out the top. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, let's, you know, so it took forever. But of course, night one, number one, what happens? Downpour. All of the girls into two tents. Guys sleeping in the vans. You know, I was just, it was just so hard. You know, and then and the, the whole time they're grumbling and complaining. It's like being in the wilderness, you know? <laughs> I mean, it really was. No, oh, I got to walk a quarter mile to the bathroom and it's up a hill which it was. So they had to do this, right? And so I'm like, you know what? But then later on, they're like, man, that was amazing. Day two, day three, here we go. On to West Virginia. We continue to move forward, right? We get to West Virginia, and I kid you not, guys, the camp, we pull in this camp. I'm like, wow, this is beautiful. This is such a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous camp. Hey, um, where's, our, where's our campsites? Oh, they're like those over there. I'm like, cool, cool. And I walk over. Here's what I see. A plank of wood about six feet by six feet and then a big hill. And I thought, that's not going to fit our tents. My assistant had overlooked that there's a platform when we reserve spaces, and so we pull out these 15-person tents, and it's like the middle worked, but everything else just hung off the sides. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even a tent. It was like sleeping in like a hammock, you know, like the kid who's like, I'll live adventurously, just down the side, you know? I'm like, this is horrible, but it was great. But here's the thing, when I think about this, like what, I, what we learned, and this is what we taught, you know, I tell all this to, to kind of bring it back to this, right, is that what we are teaching the students, kind of our main teaching point uh, throughout the week as we're wrestling through scripture and, and disciple-making principles, we said, hey, here's the deal, we're going to Niagara Falls. That's the destination. But here's what I need you to know, is that how you get there matters, you see, it's so important, it's something that we overlook because we don't think about heaven as a destination. You see, there's this promised land, the equivalent, the metaphor for us in today is we as Christians, we go, the promised land is heaven. That's a destination, but how we get there matters. And so when you're going through life and, and you get to that spot where it's like, hey, God's like, I'm leading you, I'm leading you, and you peek and peer up over that mountain and you're like, oh, there's giants. What's going on? 
You see, we find that for, for us, like whatever it is in our life and, and for you and for me and us collectively, go, like what's that hill? Like what's in front of you? What's in front of us that scares us, that, that brings hesitancy, that, 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 that causes us to go, mm-mm, I'm out. It's too big. You see, God is leading this through this guy named Joshua. And he gives these ridiculously incredible promises that you'll get nowhere else in life. Look at this in verse 3. It says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. If you're a 10 year old kid, you're like this. <laughs> it's mine. Amen. It's mine. Love it. Yeah? This is where we're going. Look at verse 4. He gives us more. He tells us a little bit. He says, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Gosh, you look at this and you go, all of a sudden, this has changed from a location to a destination. Because if you're going on this Niagara Falls, you go back to this trip, right? And it's like, hey, kids, where are we going? They're like, hey, hey, Seth, where are we going? Ah, we're going someplace north. Some location north. That's no different than east, west, or south. It's better than east because you go east, you just go into the ocean from Charlotte. We're just going north. But as soon as you say, oh, it's Niagara Falls, and you start to, to depict what's happening, guys, can I just tell you, I thought Niagara Falls was going to be boring. It's not. When you get on that boat and you are confronted with the sheer force of this pounding water off of it, and you go, some guy went off of a barrel, or in a barrel, through this thing. This is where Jim and Pam got married on the office. This is incredible. Right? You're like, this is, a, this is the greatest spot. You see, you think about, it's not just a location, it's a destination. And that's so important for us as we think, this is why heaven needs to be a part of every single day for you and me. Because when you go through struggle, and I'll repeat this at the end, because this is so important. When you go through struggles and whatever it is that you're going through, if the promised land and is, is just a location and not a destination, you're going to be stuck in the wilderness. And life is going to feel like my life is just back and forth in this circle. And Jesus is a hoop to be jumped through and not a place where I can find rest. You see, it's all about what he promises us. There's this land that he promises, but it's not just the land that he promises to Joshua and his people, right? He also is promising this, this sense of rest. Look at verse five. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, first glance, you look at that and we go, that's because there's conquest, God is setting Joshua up. He's like, hey, this is going to be a hard thing. When you go in, it's not like the land is empty. It's not like you're going to a theme park that's been magically built for you, but nobody's there. You're going to a place that people are possessive of. That's their home, but it's yours. I told you so. And so he's like, it's, it's going to be hard. You've got to go in, but there is going to be this work, and there's going to be this conquest. But on the other side of that conquest is rest because this is where I want you to be. 
And you see, this goes all the way back to creation, doesn't it? There's this theology of work and rest. Whether you're younger or older, that's not the point. Well, the point being is that God created in a period of time, and then what did he do? He rested. You see, for us as people, we are designed, we were designed even from the very beginning to rule over the earth. It's like, this is, this is how you're going to, part of how you fulfill the image of me inside of you is to exercise dominion. But when you exert yourself, your body needs recouping. And so for many of us, we, we long for that rest, which is in part what heaven is, not fully, but in part that we long for rest, but that comes on the back end of the work. You see, for Joshua and for all of the people that have been traveling and stuck in the wilderness for 40 years, right, the promise that God has been speaking to them is that when you get to this place, what's going to happen? He doesn't say, when you get to this place, life will just be hard for the rest of your life and you're going to fight off enemies. No, he says, when you get to this place, it will be a land flowing with milk and honey. And all of a sudden, you're like, wow, that's restful. Like, that's the promise. That's on the other side of this work. That's on the other side of the conquest that God needed to happen. My wife and I used to do a lot of backpacking, and we loved it. And, you know, so we like living off of the land for a certain period of time. Because you hit day eight, and all of a sudden, it's like lumness bread from, from, you know, Lord of the Rings. It's the same thing every day. You're like, oh, I just want a cheeseburger. You know, like you're, you're thinking about it. If you, you spent 40 days, 40 years in the arid wilderness, anything sounds good. And we're like, that's where I want to be. And it's not so much about the milk and honey. What it's promising is that, is that the, in the contrast to the, to the arid nature of the wilderness, there is a land that I promise for you that is fertile. And it will be restful. It's a place where you can, can, can plant your feet, create your home, lay down in your bed, and live your life the way that I've asked you to live it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful image that he gives us. And get this, the promises don't stop there, right? On top of all that, what does God say? He says, in the midst of all that, you're not going to do this alone. He says, guess what? It's about you and me. I will be with you. Think about that promise just for a moment. I will be with you. I, this is going to might be a little strange. I know that some of you guys like deep dives, and um, I love Hebrews. Some of you guys do, some of you don't. So if you don't, you can take a nap for, you know, 30 seconds. The word in Hebrew, hayah, means to be, Okay? When God reveals later in Scripture what his personal name is, what is it? Y-H-W-H. Do you know where that stems from? Right here. You see, when God is asked his name, what does he do? He takes the one word that in every language has this. The idea of existence, to be. And he creates his name from it. Right? And what does he do? He translates this. He says, I am. Guys, this is not some simpleton answer. It's not like a, like a ladybug somehow gained consciousness. It's like, whoa, I am. 
No, this is, this is very deep. This is the God of the universe stating with simplicity and so much depth, if you want to know about life, if you want to know about existence, here's where you look. Yahweh. And you go, wow, that's incredible. And so all of a sudden, we start to think about our existence. So when God says, I will be with you, he's using Hayah. But when it says the Lord will be with you, he's using Yahweh. And so all of a sudden you begin to see that it's not so simple. Because everywhere I go, in every story, in every circumstance that I exist, it comes from him. And God says, I will be with you. And all of a sudden you're like, man, like, Whatever that mountain, whatever it is, is I'm peeking over the mountain right now, and I go, ooh, giants. All of a sudden, you're like, God's with me. Yahweh, the guy whom existence comes from, the reason I exist, he's right here with me. That's so relational in the midst of our challenges and our struggles. But I love this. He goes on, and he says, it's not just that, that that's the case. He says, by the way, I will never leave you or forsake you. To leave is the idea of like God is, is holding you with his hand and to leave would be to drop his hand. To forsake would be to move to the other room, to go somewhere else. Immediately, I was thinking about like in my own life, like what does this look like? And I remember when Eden, our daughter, was first learning how to stand. You know, and so those moments as she would stand and I would hold her hands or hold her body or whatever that is, right, I'm holding her. Now, when I drop my hands, what happens? You know, and sometimes I'd be like, hey, sweetie, you know what? I need a glass of water and I would just go for 10 seconds and I would come back. But in the meantime, she would stand up and what would she do? Thump. You see, see, sometimes in life, like we th- I think that we think that God is like he's, he's there, but he's not there. And all of a sudden, when you begin to think about his promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, he's like, no, Seth, you got it all wrong. There's not a moment in your life where I don't have my hands on you. Not a moment. And I'm not going to leave. It's not like I'm thirsty and need to go get a drink and say, hey, Seth, man, you're on your own for a second. Every moment, he's like, I got you. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. You see, promises, these are, these are ridiculously incredible promises on God's part, and we go, but for our end, right, like, we have to trust that those things are true, and it's a simple thing. I get it, and I don't want to over, like, over-reduce it, but it is true. We have to trust, and so for God with Joshua, he's like, here's the deal, Joshua. I'm right here. I've chosen you. I've commissioned you. I've got my hands on you. We want to leave the wilderness behind, but it takes you trusting me, and that's walking forward And that's where the next thing comes in. It's not just a commission. It's not just a promise. God moves into this deep encouragement for Joshua. And he's going to give him some commands. Look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do you know how simple that is? 
It's like, it's like God looked into the heart of Joshua, and if Joshua is a type of humanity in that moment, because you and I are reflected in Joshua, it's like God looked into Joshua's heart. He's like, I get it. This is hard. Those giants are big. People may not follow you. You might feel inadequate. You're going to make mistakes. I, all of these things that are probably running through Joshua's head and his heart. And what does God say? Hey, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous for you will be the person to cause this people to inherit the land. And it's part of a promise that I started long ago with your forefathers. And even before that, before there was Jacob, before there was Isaac, before there was Abram, and guess what? All the way back to the Garden of Eden, when as soon as sin entered into the world, I said, I'm not okay with this, I'm gonna fix it. That's the promise that you're connected to. It's not about you. It's about me, he says. He doubles down in verse 7. Look at this. It says, only be strong and very courageous. I love that he's like, he doesn't give Joshua even a moment to respond. Oh, but God, nope. He goes, only be strong and very courageous. He doubles down as he's talking to him. He says, here's the deal. He's like, man, I want you to be careful to do everything that is written in the book of the law. I don't want you to turn to the right. I don't want you to turn to the left because there's a path that is right in front of you. When I was a sophomore uh, in college, um, I was living in Colorado at the time and, and uh, about seven or six or seven of us who were kind of like studying the word together, we decided we'd, to, we'd uh, go climb uh, a mountain. So we went to this Mount Massive, which is called Mount Massive because it has the, the most amount of land um, collectively above 14,000 feet. And, um, you know, it's a long hike. It's actually the second tallest mountain, I think, in Colorado to, to Mount Elbert. So we knew that it was going to be a trek. We knew that it was going to be hard. Um, there was still some snow on the ground in parts. And I remember very, um, very keenly this, this one place in the trail as we got there, and we couldn't tell if it was to the right or to the left. And we're like, uh, who's been here before? No, nobody? Okay. What do we do? Well, let's go left. That was wrong. It was wrong. You know what? We ended up not on the easy path like that goes up, if you can call it easy. We ended up on the back side of the mountain that's like this, just, just jagged rocks. And because we're, we're, we're dumb, we still did it, you know? Um, but that last thousand feet was just hand over feet, like crawling on, on rocks. And we're like, man, it all started when? When we took a left instead of a right. You see, I can tell you this about our time and our trip. Guys, we as men were strong and courageous, but we needed a better map. We did. And this is what happens in verse eight. Like, what is the map? It's God's word. This is, this is a verse that's, that's so important, um, and it's a verse that many of us know. The book, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. 
Stop there. You, maybe you've heard that a thousand times. Have you ever gone back and looked at Exodus 33? Because in Exodus 33, there's a story about Moses and Joshua, and God has come down to talk to Joshua in this tent. And a part of the context of that chapter is that they're remaking the what? The law. Why? Because they were broken. Why? Because God's people were disobedient. And so what's he doing is he's recreating and remaking these tablets with the law on them. And here's what the text says. It says, Joshua would not depart from the tent. Do you see the connection? It's like God's taking Joshua back in time, going, hey, remember that time when we were recreating those tablets of the law and you wouldn't leave the tent? Here's the deal. I don't want those words to leave your mouth. You see, there's this devotion and commitment to God's word, which I think is in part why God chose Joshua to, to succeed Moses, because he had this tremendous desire for the book of the law. Do not let it depart from your mouth. In fact, how do we do that? How do we make sure that it doesn't depart from our mouth? He says, meditate on it day and night. It takes you back to the very moment when they're creating the 10 laws to begin with. What does it talk about in Deuteronomy? Is it, is it, is it lays those out. It says, of this law, talk about it When? When you stand, when you sit, when you rise, whatever you're doing, day in and day out. And all of a sudden we begin to see that meditating is this idea where we, we pull God's word into our heart and we begin to mull on it and we begin to think about it and pray over it so that it's always close to the tongue. So, so in those moments when we're tempted to steal, when we're tempted to covet, or whatever it is, we come back even to the greatest commandment, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Oh, and by the way, the second is like it, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, meditating on God's word is this over and over continuous way in which we're pulling it into our hearts says, that's how you know that it will not depart from your mouth. Amen. Hold it close to your heart. By the way, it's not without its purpose. It's not just to learn. It's not just to soak things up. He says, so that you may be careful to do everything in it in which is written. But I love, I, I, lo I love the order of this. If you notice the sequence, it starts with what, right? Do the law. Do it. Just do it. Right? Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Just do the law. Oh, by the way, don't let it depart from your mouth. Oh, by the way, meditate. You see, it's like he goes down into the deep parts and he reminds us this is where it really is. Meditate on his word, on his law, day in and day out. Verse nine, he does, he finally, he triples down on this idea of be strong and courageous because where does it start? He says, be strong and courageous. Oh, by the way, um, only be strong and very courageous. Oh, by the way, third tier, have I not commanded you? Question, <laughs> be strong and courageous, right? And I love the promise that comes back out of that. He says, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.
And so, and I think about this, guys, uh, in, in our lives uh, today, like I was thinking about this guy, I, I went to a, a conference many years ago, uh, my wife and I, and this guy was, was sharing, and he's a, um, he's a counselor by trade, and so he was sharing, and in that, he shared a story about how he listened to somebody else uh, in a conference, so that's kind of a weird rabbit trail. Um, but he's talking, and what he says is he was listening to this guy, and the guy says he's talking all about fear, in our lives, over and over. He's like, here's fear, 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 fear. And he goes, as I'm sitting in the audience, he's going, wow, he's nailing that. That's exactly true. Fear is a driving force for us. Wow, that's so good. And in the end, he goes, do not be afraid. And so here's the deal. The guy in the audience is like, yes, this is great. Just wait for it. He's setting himself up for the gospel. He's going to tell us that, that we don't need to be afraid because, because God is with you. And the guy's like, don't be afraid. Let's pray. He's like, what? You, 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 you like forgot the good news. The good news. Like, like, do not be afraid. That's worthless apart from because God is with you. And so as you think about in our daily life, you think about the gospel, right? We go, it's not about works, right? It's not all of those things. We go, man, like God is with us. Like that's the thing in our life. And you look at Paul, um, like he would affirm with us in this. What does Paul say? He says, in my weakness, God is strong, right? And so we admit and affirm our weaknesses, but we look at it in the sense that we go, man, in the midst of that, God has all of this on his back, not me. And so God commissions Joshua. He encourages him with promises, and then he encourages him with these commands to go. And so as I think about this, you go, okay, so what happens in the rest of Joshua? This is how we wrap it up, right? The next 12 chapters is Joshua going and conquering the land. The next chapters after that until the end of the book is Joshua ruling and dividing up all of the land to people. And so what happens, the book of Joshua ends with people finally having received their inheritance. After how many years? Which, by the way, when you think about this, God said, this is the thing that I'm giving to my people. At any point, did they determine or show that they were not worthy of this? 100%. So this right here, when God says, I'm giving it to them, you go, oh yeah, it's a gift. This is a gift. This is the promise that he gives to us. And so as they receive their inheritance, this is a gift from God that, that they didn't deserve. It's not anything that they earned. And when you look uh, in the New Testament in Hebrews chapters 3, 4, and 5, you can find some really fascinating stuff. But I love this in chapter 4. Look at this first verse in verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest. What, is that? what does it tell you? Joshua didn't give them rest. You see, they made it here. But rest was not what they thought it was. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his so as you, as, you think, uh, as you think about this, guys, like all, you know, see, like, yeah, they go into the promised land and what happens is that they're promised rest, but at the end of the day, sin is still the ruling and governing factor of, hum of humanity. 
And so what happens, right, is that, is that Joshua and the rest that he provided was yet again a foreshadowing of something even better and something even greater that's connected all the way through the covenant back to Genesis chapter 3. Get this. This is so great. This is fun. Joshua. His original name, I don't know if you guys know this, but his original name in Hebrew was not Joshua. It was Hosea. Do you know what Hosea means? Salvation. When he started spending time with Moses, Moses knew and acknowledged that Joshua was his predecessor or his next successor. And so they changed his name from Hosea to Yeshua or to to Yehoshua. You know what that means? The Lord saves. Do you want to know what the equivalent to the name Joshua in Hebrew and Greek? Jesus. (laughs) Did somebody just go, what? So here's the thing, Joshua, the Lord saves. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus enters in the story. He's like, yep, the Lord saves. It's on me. So when you start to think about the rest, you start to think about Jesus enters in the story. He says, victory, conquering the land, that's not enough. Conquering sin, that's what I'm about. Promised land, Yep, I got that too, eternal rest, eternal life, right? This is all on Jesus, and I love that in Joshua, it says that this promise will will last all the days of his life. You ship to Jesus, and all of a sudden, it goes from every day of your life, which is already pretty good, to eternity. We go, wow, that's pretty incredible. I will save. It's only in Jesus. And here's this thing, as we wrap this up, we go, why don't we experience this in today's world? Why don't I experience the rest of Jesus? Many Christians, I think, end up living between Egypt and Canaan because Egypt represents freedom from slavery. Canaan represents the rest of the promised land. You see, I think that we as Christians end up living somewhere between the fact that we know we've been saved from our sin, but we have not yet made it into this place of rest. Because for many of us, we're unwilling to go as you peek over the mountain to go, what's beyond? And as God looks at us, he says, be strong and courageous because on the other side of some of the things that I'm calling you to do, there's this massive rest. By the way, you can have that rest right now in your walk with Jesus. It's not a works thing. You can have that rest right now. And I love that about the gospel. I love that about the story. And here's what I would tell you is that hope in heaven needs to be a part of everyday struggles in your life. Because if you're viewing heaven as a location, that's not inspiring. But if this is a destination, if this is a place that you know that you're going, that you're excited about being, guess what? It will change how you live here. 
And all of a sudden, Christianity is less about walking through the wilderness aimlessly and moving in a direction than when God says go. And he says, in the midst of that, I promise to give you rest. Niagara Falls, when we got there, was far better than I thought that it would be. And God just looks at us in our life and he says, be strong and courageous. Give you these three things as we finish. Because I don't think many Christians get to practice rest well. Our lives are so busy. It's so hard. First thing I tell you, make sure you're practicing a weekly Sabbath. Because most Christians struggle with this. We end up so busy that we don't dedicate time to actually resting and reflecting on God the way that he asks us to, whether we need it. Find help with struggles. You know, none of us are, we're like human, humanity is not designed to do life alone. I feel that sometimes, or actually oftentimes in life, that people have all these struggles going on in life, and for fear uh, of people knowing about those things, or, or whatever it is, we keep it to ourselves. and yet those things can prevent us from entering and experiencing rest. So find someone, find people to do life with you that will help you Enter into rest. And the last is simple, but also hard. Meditate. Take God's word and hold it close to your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish and as we wrap up this morning, as we're going to do some songs and, and communion, I pray that you would be tugging at our hearts this morning, that we would look at Jesus in a whole new way. That we would see, you know, in some sense, the type of Joshua to, to the fulfillment of Jesus, the Lord saves. And we look at Jesus, he goes, I save. This is why I'm here. And so as we celebrate communion, I pray that we'd be overjoyed with the fact that when, when God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous, that Jesus said, guess what? I will be strong and courageous for you because you can't handle the cross and you can't work or earn or gain anything of your salvation except through me. And so, Father, let I pray this morning we would turn and surrender our hearts to you.